Hello and welcome to a special Who's He podcast with me, Phil. And in today's show, we have the second of three interviews that I took part in at the Hooverville 9 convention in Derby back in September. And we also have a short review of the recent release of another in the Doctor's DVD series from Kosh Media, The Tom Baker Years. A couple of weeks back, we released the first of the Hooverville 9 interviews that I was fortunate to take part in, an interview with the legendary Philip Hinchcliffe. The second interview, which you are about to hear, is with Doctor Who production designer Michael Pickwode, who has been, or had been, with the Doctor Who production team since 2010, beginning with the episode A Christmas Carol, right up until his last production with the final Peter Capaldi story, Twice Upon a Time, coming this Christmas. Unfortunately, we didn't have a lot of time with Michael, as the interview schedule for the podcast room at Hooverville went a little off-piste, which, to be honest, is to be expected. All the guests there are for the pain public to see and hear, not for the likes of us podcasters to you know, manipulate their time. So we're really lucky to have the time that we did with Michael Pickwood. So, I joined Karen and Adam from the Staggering Stories podcast and sat down to talk to a very interesting man. Start by introducing ourselves. Um, my name is Phil. I'm Karen. I'm Adam. And with us, we have Michael Pickwood. Welcome. Thank you very much. How do you do? Thank you. Welcome. So, um, I think for our listeners out there, um, what is a production designer? What, yeah. what does that actually entail? Yes, it's strange that you should ask. Well, it isn't strange you should ask. Lots of people actually don't really under, I can't think why, because the designer, the title is fairly self-explanatory, <laughs> in that you design the production. I mean, the, the look of the finding of locations that you don't necessarily always find them, sometimes you do, but you're responsible for their finding, what the whole show looks like, designing the set, sometimes yeah. it's more set, sometimes it's more locations, the design of the props. You have people getting the furniture and the other decorations, but you know, as the production designer, you're responsible for what it looks like and probably thinking of the ideas. Yeah, because I think most, most people just seem to think it's just the sets, designing the locations, yeah. and that's it. Not everything else that comes that comes with it as well. So, so I mean, how did you get started in the in the business? Well, it was a few years ago now, and um, <laughs> but I was I'd done engineering at university because I wanted to design yachts and other sorts of things. Yeah. And when I finished, I realised that I mean that I'd sort of switched to civil engineering, and then you, I just suddenly thought the designing on film might be quite interesting because you need the sort of knowledge of engineering yeah. possibly, you yeah. see, which has turned out to be the case. And my father was an actor. Right. And he was working on a film at um, Shepperton Studios at the time. I think it was the best house in London with David Hemmings, I think, oh, in, right, okay. in, in the yeah. late 60s. Yeah. And he spoke to the art director and said, I should, oh, you should, your son should ring up the chief construction manager at the studios, mm. which was Shepperton, but run by John and Roy Belting, British Lion. Yeah. Yeah. And I went to see him and he introduced me to... I rang him and he said, oh, come and see me, which gave me rather a shock. But I I might have a job, you see. And um, I went to see him and he introduced me to an art director who was looking for a junior in an art department. And I'd taken engineering drawings I'd done and, you know, I could draw them anyway. And he said, oh, it looks as though you can draw, start on Monday. Well, how easy is that? (laughs) So it was was a bit very strange. And 
because it was an advertised job, and they couldn't. It, it, it meant an automatic union card, which in those oh. days was oh. crucial to everything. Gold dust, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and how did you get started on Doctor Who? Well, I was asked by it was a producer called Zana Vollenberg, um, asked me to go and see her to see, you know, to, would I be interested in doing Doctor Who? And I thought, mm. well, why do they want me? I've never done science fiction or anything like that. And but I was sent a couple of DVDs, and I think from what I could see that the, what I call the Doctor Who bits were very yeah. good, but the average things were not very interesting. Yeah. And I think they were quite keen to sort of boost, to, and my view is that if you make the dull things interesting, then the Doctor Who bits come even better. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and it's more believable. Not enough attention was being paid to sort of just ordinary things and um, so I thought well I'll, I'll give it a go and she was very keen I should do it. Yeah. I was then told I was, they apparently said I was too old. Really? <laughs> the executives you see. And, but that, but Zana being a very um, strident German producer she sort, sorted them out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <that's good. laughs> what sort of challenges, how do the challenges of Doctor Who differ from non-sci-fi? Well, I mean there is there was a certain amount of Doctor Who lore that I had no idea about, that was, but lots of people did, so that was fine. Yeah. And so I concentrated really on making what had to be done look like a good film. Yeah. Irrespective of whether it's Doctor Who or anything, it still had to be entertaining, good-looking, whatever it was. Yeah. And, being, and with, even with spaceships, one used the sort of engineering concepts to make things look structural and that things were actually not yeah. just fanciful, but there was a sense of purpose to everything you were doing. Yeah, not just because it looked pretty on the screen. Yeah, you want to function. And if you make it function and look pretty, then that's yeah. So when it comes to spaceship corridors, you make it look really quite chunky, and the whole thing is held together. You know, sometimes slick, sometimes rugged. You know, the phrase Millennium Falcon used to be used a lot, but he wanted something that was a bit rusty. Yeah, so good. You know, but at the same time, quite scientific. Yeah. So what, what sort of, I mean, obviously sort of sourcing the things you need to build a, a cell or, or a prop. I mean, where'd you go to for, the, for that well, kind of thing? Basically, it's quite useful. I mean, they had, there's quite a good sort of prop store down in Wales from Doctor Who, and there's very good aircraft breakers at St Athens, and they were very helpful for getting <laughs> some bits you get given they can't get rid of, some bits we've hired, some bits we've bought. Yeah. And even actually when, um, when in the last Christmas special, when the Superman is holding up the spaceship. Uh -huh. It's actually the nose cane of a jumbo jet we borrowed from oh, really? the <laughs> Or the radar, the radar dome cover at the front. I didn't you could borrow a nose cone of a jumbo jet. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have one that they were break, about to break up. Yeah. Or, you know, so yeah. they, we said, no. They said, we got the honey. It was an Airbus one, but it was rather asymmetric and wasn't busy that much. Okay, we'll take that one off for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they could be filmed on their aircraft when they before they've broken up or whatever. And even actually, there's a firm next door that mends them. It's run by the man who used to main, the lead singer of Iron Maiden, actually, who who, who, who owns the firm. He's a great flyer. And we've shot in their hangar with aircraft. You know, it becomes you know boat one for the unit. You know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And even actually, the steps they have there have got units on the side of which they rather like. They've been there for the last six years, this sign stuck to the side of their steps. Has there been a, a design or an effect that you've been particularly pleased with? Well, there's lots of things that have happened that have been, I mean, 
everything you do tends to be even more dramatic than <laughs> I sort of, I mean, yeah, I can't think we did this. This I enjoyed doing the ice fair, it was quite fun, and we had to build yeah. London on the bridge for that. I couldn't believe that was actually a set. <laughs> no, me neither. Yeah. No, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, that was rather fun, because Blackfriars Bridge was gone, the one that would have been there. Yeah. It was not, not the one that's there now. I don't know, that was quite entertaining, and then I mean, even doing the last two episodes were great fun, and then building cans on tops of hills in Wales. <laughs> <laughs> so it's on top of a hill in Wales, but it's meant to be Scotland. Scotland, yeah. Scotland. Okay. <laughs> but if you've been to the Brecon Beacons on a fog, you could be anywhere. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so when you kind of sort of redesign um, the TARDIS interior, um, because I was sort of fortunate enough to have a trip around Maxwell's first TARDIS, yeah. and I was told by the, the um, two of the guys who sort of helped build the set, um, saying that they were, they were constructing the new one, and I don't know if they were actually meant to have told me that at the time or not, I think it was a bit, a bit of a secret yeah. back then. Um, but what, are you given any sort of brief to, to well, follow? Well no, I mean, in a way I worked on, the first series I worked on, we had the old Matt Smith TARDIS, yeah. and next door was the David Tennant TARDIS, which actually was quite a... Was, <laughs> was quite fun, was quite neat, I rather liked that, I preferred it in a way, but yeah. there was only half of it, you see, because yeah. they were running out of money and time and space when it was yeah. built. And then it got moved actually from another location to there, and then they built the Matt Smith one, but that couldn't move, was, that was built in a strange way, but because they used steelwork from the Torchwood hub, oh, okay. which yeah. rather limited what they did, which actually was a mistake, I think, because it didn't give them proper chance. I remember do. them complaining it was such a rigid set they couldn't do anything. And also with it, yeah. but there were lots of things in it you couldn't get to any of it, you couldn't use it, you see. Yeah. So I thought when I was over the time I was there, well if I have to do one, they can make get to the gallery, make a gallery that goes all the way round and you can use the levels and play with it. There's more yeah. scope, you see. Yeah. And then when it came they said we've got to have one. I got luckily given two months to one month myself designing it and then we had a month drawing it up initially. And I, in fact, though, before actually we left the last one, before we left that series, I got one of my draftsmen to draw up the rib that I'd sort of did, thinking that the shape we wanted to get it costed by the steel, uh, uh, tame steel workers, yeah. to get a price for what each rib might cost, you see, to make so it wasn't on, wasn't on the wrong tack. Yeah. And, um, and then I started, I, I was started to, to draw it up. And then I made a model of it and took it to took it to the wall to sort yeah. of to get it approved. And everyone thought it was quite fun. And can we do it for the price? And so I thought, no bloody idea. But anyway, <laughs> so it, it wasn't that much over what it should have been. But I knew if it wasn't good, it, no one was going to like it. You know, yeah. there's a sort of game you have to play because the TARDIS, in a way, is the interface between the public and Doctor Who. That's right. Because yeah. they will see it. Mm -hmm. And it's their tangible touch, and it's got to be impressive not only for the show, but for anybody who comes. You want you want good report. Yeah, yeah. You know, and um, but so I thought well that I we. Sorry, I forget where we were going on this one. <laughs> sorry, no, no, you were saying about the um, you know, this design and it. So because you said that was the interface with. Um, and then with actually, yes, yeah. I remember talking to Stephen Moffat. As we had a little drinks when Piers Wenger was one of the executives was leaving yeah. on the TARDIS one evening in, in the old one in up and up a boat, yeah. and I was talk, sort of talking to Stephen and I said I thought the new one should be very high tech because that was the sort of the time and the the, what's it, the hadron collider was just coming yeah. online and was yeah. really that looked 
as though the doctor should have some of that, you know. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I, and he said yes, and it should because they would fly. And he liked, he wanted, he liked a more a harder, a harder console. Yeah. Mm. The sort of Toyota look. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but in a way, it was more mechanical, and somehow it fitted the. You either yeah. got to go really spacey and curvy, which is expensive, and also you can tire of. Mm. It's very hard to tire of retro. <laughs> Mm. In a way, because it, yeah, it yeah. always looks understandable, and you can always add things to it and play with it. Mm. And so that's why I started. And then I thought, because in a way, it wanted to do, it's like you walk into a cathedral and you go, ooh, mm. you know. Yeah. I wanted that that feeling. And I remember the first time I ever stood in the cab of a steam engine, when you were in awe and wonder and quite terrified of touching anything. Yeah. And that was the feeling you wanted yeah. to make. Everybody walked into it. Well, when we did yeah, the tour yeah. of the TARDIS set, we, the first, first time, time yeah. it was exactly that. It yeah. was like, wow. We, we, we could hardly speak. It, it felt wrong yeah. to even say also Because I, because also the previous one had a door right at one edge, which made you take a long walk to get to the middle. Yes, <laughs> yeah, true. And going up the steps into the middle. Yeah. And also, you were at the edge. I wanted to, so I wanted to give an entrance that looked like it had been sucked in. So when you... Get it. when you actually arrive in it, mm. there was something behind you. Mm, so yeah. it was all around you, so it could give a sense of being bigger than mm. yeah. what you're just coming from the outside. The yeah. Clever details of the pipes, mm. so you can see that on the inside of the yes. police box prop to give yeah. you the impression they're joined. Oh yes. Yeah. And um, no, so that was the sort of the, the scheme of it. And then also I thought that, well, what happens above? They always have the time rate, but they always got something above mm. something, you know. But it, it, the very first one didn't. It had the strange lamp. That's right. That we yeah. redid for the last episode, but but that sort of got shifted into the middle somehow in the late in the next ones. And there was always something happening above, yeah. but it didn't really do anything, except suggest that it might. So I thought, well, no, this is no good. We've got to go one further here. Maybe if I can make something that revolves, and then if it can. It could be like a cylindrical slide rule, mm -hmm. but in which case all the ribs, all the turn, all the rings need to rotate. Maybe one in the middle a different way. Mm -hmm. I thought, how can I, how can we do that? And then I was looking at the microwave, like James Watt botched his kettle. Okay. Yeah. And I could see if you actually held the arms on which the plastic wheels were on, the microwave would turn in a different direction to the bowl above it, the plate above it. Yeah. So. What, so we had one motor and two sets of wheels that were yeah. locked. So, but had I, had I thought more cleverly, I would have made one set of wheels bigger and then they would have turned at different speeds. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If you look carefully, the top one goes the same speed yeah. as the bottom one. Yeah. If I'd done it a slightly different size, it would have, uh, but still, <laughs> kind of everything. Is there anything in particular that you, you've, you've put a design forward? And it not, I mean, not just Doctor Who, any, anything you've been involved in, and they sort of knocked it back for like a, a design reason, or a budgetary reason? Well, constantly, you can't do as much as you, have, as you first thought, but yeah. not a lot. I mean, because you design, you understand in a way what you're doing when you design it. You're designing it not just like really nearly for the fun of it. Yeah. You know, you're aware of the restrictions. I mean, even I had to push to get the bridge <laughs> done for that, the Blackfriars Bridge. Oh, okay. But I said, if it didn't have a bridge, you didn't, you didn't know it was a river. <laughs> if it was yeah, that's true, yeah. Because yeah. there's not a lot of water flowing underneath, it was all a bit solid. Yeah. Ice is easy. Always do ice on a film for a river, or low tide, it's much cheaper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Anyway, being told to wrap yeah, up, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, I, I so. believe, is it true that you're stepping down or have stepped down? Well, yes, I mean, in Doctor Who terms, I'm probably still there because the Christmas special hasn't been shown. Yes. Yeah. 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 But no, I've seven years I'd done, and it was a change of producer, change of doctor. Yes change of everything else and yeah. seven years is a long time yeah, and, one, yeah. and it needs another way of looking at it, it, it and also the new team coming in will want it a different slant and I got yeah. very used to the slant we were doing and you know and I'm sure someone will do it. What? Oh yes well, I'm working on a film up in Manchester at the moment which strangely has two characters two actors in it who are in the last year's Christmas special Justin oh. Chatwin <laughs> and, and, and Tomu Edfor I think is their name is who is Wow. Not one of the people. Oh, awesome. yeah. Still got the Doctor Who connection. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> and not only that, the man who came in to do some, a stunt arranging was Crispin, who did the one. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so, so it felt Small a bit, world. Felt yeah. a bit yeah. strange. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. So there you are. That was Michael Peckwode. I really, really wish we had more time with him, as we barely scratched the surface of his career, and he really was fascinating to talk to, so I really hope that our paths cross again one day. I must also say a massive thank you to the guys at Staggering Stories, um, once again for sending me a copy of the interview, and a special thank you to Adam and Karen for inviting me to join them in the interview in the first place. In a couple of weeks' time, you'll be able to hear the third and last interview I took part in, and that was with a real legend of Doctor Who, Zoe Herriot herself, Wendy Padbury. A few weeks back, I reviewed the second in the Doctor's DVD series from Kosh Media, the Pat Troughton years. So thanks to the guys at Witchfinder PR, again, they very kindly sent along a review copy of the next in this uh, Doctor's DVD series, the Tom Baker years. As with the previous releases in this series, dedicated to Pertwee and, and then Troughton, the Tom Baker years is a collection of interviews recorded for the Mythmaker series, which were recorded throughout the 80s, 90s and 2000s for real-time pictures, which was the brainchild of producer Keith Barnfather and actor, writer and director and voice of the Daleks, Nicholas Briggs. And obviously the interviews on this DVD are all connected to people who have acted alongside Tom Baker during his tenure as the Doctor. So have interviews with Liz Sladen, Ian Marta, Louise Jameson, Mary Tam and John Leeson. But most importantly, this DVD includes the Mythmakers interview with Tom Baker himself, which was recorded in 1989. And as before, Nicholas Briggs establishes and maintains a connection with the people he's talking to. And this has to be due to the fact that he is a massive Doctor Who fanboy and probably also because he's also an actor, so he understands what it is to tread the boards or stand in front of a camera. Another feature of these interviews is that real-time pictures conducted some of them at the shooting locations of Doctor Who stories connected to the person that Nick Briggs was interviewing. For example, the Tom Baker interview is held at the village where the Android Invasion was filmed, and the Liz Slayton interview was recorded at the Folly where they filmed The Time Warrior. The interviews themselves are very interesting, and again not only concentrates on their Doctor Who careers, but also what motivated them into acting in the first place, and what happened to them post-Doctor Who. But unlike last time when I reviewed the Pat Troughton Years DVD, this time around I didn't get a sense of acting being a tough and unforgiving career choice. 
Everyone involved in this collection appeared at the time of recording, at least, to be very upbeat and optimistic about their careers post-Doctor Who. So I suppose if you were considering a career as an actor, it would be better to watch this DVD for encouragement rather than the Pat Troughton DVD. Well, I'm not going to spot any of, the, any of the interviews for you. There are a couple of them that I wanted to highlight. Firstly, the Tom Baker interview. As you would expect with Tom Baker, it is a very open and honest interview, with Tom getting quite melancholy on occasions, which he is often wont to do. But to hear him state that it was very proprietorial of the role and could be rather difficult to work with was quite an admission. But thinking about it, was it really? As I said, Tom could be very melancholic, even talking about his infamous gravestone during this interview, so it could, you know, should come as no surprise that he is very self-critical. But the other interview I wanted to highlight was the Ian Martyr interview. This one is very poignant, as it was filmed in 1986, just recorded three weeks before he died of a, suddenly of a heart attack. And it was a reminder of why no one had a bad word to say about him. Very self-effacing and witty, again it's a very open and honest interview. And while he did regret not acting much post-Doctor Who, he talks about very much enjoying adapting the scripts and writing for Target. But what is really sad about this collection is that Liz Sladen, Ian Marta and Mary Tam are no longer with us. And it's another reminder that they were taken from us far too early and are all greatly missed. However, the interviews themselves are not without their problems. The Tom Baker interview, for example, was constantly interrupted by cars passing by. And while it probably seemed like a good idea at the time to film in the location of the android invasion, the sound of passing cars is more than a little distracting and did break the flow of the interview. Also, rather than simply sitting down and talking to their subjects, Realtime decided to have a framing device around the interviews, which sort of topped and tailed in the, the actual interview times. And some were more successful than others. Again, the Tom Baker interview had a framing device that featured John Levine as Sergeant Benton, or should I say the android Sergeant Benton, which had a, a payoff at the end. But the framing device for Ian Martha's interview, which surrounded the Zygons, well, a Zygon arm anyway, went nowhere. And part of the interview you watched through a Zygon monitor, which again was very distracting and also unnecessary. Also on occasions, proceedings could get a little self-indulgent. One interview in particular features sections that are purely there to highlight the actor's skills. Now this would not usually be achieved by showing clips, but real-time budgets would not stretch to this. So as soon as this person more or less said, theatre is my first love, I feared the worst. And sorry to say my fears were well-founded because before I knew it, pieces were being acted to camera, sometimes with Nick Briggs but mostly solo. To be fair, this person is a very good actor, but to me this is everything I dislike about theatre. The over-the-top earnestness, the seriousness, and most of all, just being a massive lovey. Not for me, thanks. So, all in all, it's another very good collection of fascinating interviews. But, if you've already purchased these under the Mythmakers banner, then I'm afraid there is nothing new for you here. But for those of you who have never seen or heard these interviews before, or just want to know more about this particular period of Doctor Who, you would do well to buy this DVD.
Well, there you are, at the end of another podcast. I'll be back next week with Paul to review Aliens of London. So until then, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Listening to the Who's He podcast. Please visit our website at who's-he-podcast.co.uk. You can also follow us on Twitter at who's underscore he underscore podcast. And please also join the Who's He podcast Facebook group. The Who's He podcast is a member of the Doctor Who Podcast Alliance.